Good morning. One day earlier this week, Lisa and I were uh, visiting one of our senior ladies in the nursing home, and uh, Lisa, I, I tend to walk fast and sometimes unknowingly walk in front of her a little bit, and it's a bad habit of mine. And so I was walking down the hall, and, and I turned down another hall to the right because I knew where we were going, and, and she kind of stopped there at that intersection, and she said, where are you going? Now, I didn't even notice it, but there was a, a little senior adult lady sitting right there on the corner, kind of at that intersection of this hallway and that hallway. She was sitting right there, and when, when Lee, I, I was walking down the hall, and Lisa said, where are you going? And the little lady said, I'll tell you where he's going. He's going down the memory care unit, memory care unit. And she was right. That's where I was going. And so I continued on down the hallway and um, got to the memory care unit. Eventually, Lisa made it down there with me. And we're standing there in front of the doorway, and the door was locked. And I noticed there was a keypad over on the wall, and I, I said, we need to ask somebody what the code is. Now, this little old lady was 30 feet behind me down the hall at the corner. But when I said, we need to find out what the code is, she said, I know it. <laughs> Nothing wrong with her hearing, that's for sure. And I looked at Lisa like, do you think she really does? And, and so I, I walked back up there, and I said, uh, ma'am, do you know the code for the, for the memory care unit door? And she said, yep. They don't know I know it, but I do. <laughs> she said, I'm not supposed to know it, but it's 2260 star. And I thought, that'll never work. And I walked down, I put 20, I, well, I started to go down to the hallway to put in 2260 star. And as I was walking down the hallway, I heard her say behind me, you can learn a lot just sitting here. <laughs> uh, so I tell you, this is what I'm going to say to you today. I hope you'll learn a lot today just sitting there. And I hope your memory is as good as hers. And I hope that your hearing is as good as hers. Because indeed, you can learn a lot just sitting there. Now, now last week we, were, we started this new Christmas series called The Promise. And we're looking at three different promises that God made that were all part of the great promise. That is that there is a Messiah, a Savior, who would come into the world. And last week we looked at the promise of a child in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And it says in that text, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And we looked last week at this question, Why did God send the Savior in the form of a child? Why did he come into the world as a child? And the answer is basically this, because that's the way you came into the world. It's the way all of us came into the world. Jesus didn't just come to us, he came to be one of us. It's the miracle of the incarnation. That's the big word for it, the incarnation. The eternal Son of God became flesh and blood so that he could die on the cross for our sins. So that was last Sunday. Now today, we're going to look at the promise of hope. I want you to know that there is no greater promise of hope than the story of Christmas. One of the most familiar parts of the Christmas story is something we all take for granted, and that is where Jesus was born. Let me ask you a question. I bet you won't even have to ask a neighbor, where was Jesus born? And say that like you mean it. Where was Jesus born? Yeah, you, you know that, right? You, 
that's not new information for you. You've grown up knowing that since you were small, especially if you grew up in church. You know all about Bethlehem. We sing the song that Philip Brooks wrote, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. We all understand, we all are familiar with, we've read the Gospel of Luke. We know Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It's a very familiar part of the story. The question I want to ask is this, why Bethlehem? Why was he born there? You know, I I was born at Anderson Memorial Hospital. I did not get to choose the city in which I was born. I, I didn't get to choose the fact that I would be born in Anderson, South Carolina. I'm not against that. I'm just, I just didn't have any say-so in it. Neither did you have any say-so in where you were born. You were just born where you were born. You had no say-so in it. You didn't get to choose. You didn't get to pick where you would be born. But Jesus did. So why did he pick Bethlehem? I mean, Jerusalem was only, or is only five miles away. That's where the temple was. I, if you would think that him being born as a Jew, that he would be born in the capital. He would be born where the temple is. He'd be born in Jerusalem. That's just five miles away from Bethlehem. Or it would make sense if he was born in Rome or if he was born in Athens because he was coming to be the savior of the world. Those would be good cities to be born in. Prominent cities, powerful cities, world-leading cities, Rome and Athens. He could have been born in one of those places. The little town of Bethlehem would not have been on anybody's radar. So why was it on God's radar? Well, some could say, well, there's really no rhyme or reason to it. That's just where he was born. That there's no significance to the place, some might say. I mean, you know, it's just when Mary was ready to have her baby, that just happened to be where they were. You know, they lived in Nazareth, had to go to Bethlehem, pay taxes. Just happened to be she had her baby while they were in Bethlehem. And there's all kinds of stories like that in today's time about people who have babies in places where they didn't anticipate. You know, if you, just this year, if you read the headlines, you can read about a lady who had, had a, a baby in her, in her car on the way to the hospital. Uh, you can read about a lady who had her baby, um, let's see, where was it? There was a lady who had her baby in the middle of a street in China. That, that one's amazing to me. There was a lady who had her baby on vacation. That's not much of a vacation, is it? And then probably the strangest one that I read about was a lady this past April in Omaha who had her baby while visiting the zoo. That's not a good place to have your baby. But some would say, you know what, that's just the way it was with Mary and Joseph. I mean, you know, they they happened to be in Bethlehem when the baby was born, so that's where Jesus was born. And that would make sense, except for a promise that God made 700 years before Jesus was born. 700 years before he was born, Micah prophesied the exact location, the exact city of where Jesus would be born. When Jesus could pick any place in the world, for some reason, he chose the little town of Bethlehem. And the question today is why? Why? Let's read the prophecy. It's found in Micah. If you don't know where Micah is, it's in the Old Testament. And if you start in Matthew and go to the left, that might be the fastest way to find it. Uh, About seven books over, going backwards into the Old Testament, you'll come to the little book of Micah. If you come to the book of Jonah, you've gone too far. Micah chapter 5. 
I'll give you the context while you're turning to that. Micah is writing around, writing around the same time as Isaiah. They were contemporaries. And so they were both uh, prophesying and writing in the 8th century before Christ. Now Micah was prophesying during a time that was really a, a tragic time for the nation of Israel. Assyria had conquered Samaria and had taken the ten northern tribes into captivity. Micah knew that this was part of God's judgment on his people for their sinful ways and their hard-heartedness. Micah understood that, that the judgment that they were experiencing was severe because their sin was severe. And so they were living in very tragic days when another country was ruling over them and had taken them captive back to, to uh, Assyria. And the question that was hanging in the air is this one. Is God through with Israel? Is God through with Israel? Or is there still a future for these people who seem to have no hope? In that context, that Micah prophesied and wrote these words. Micah chapter 5 and verse 1, he talks about Jerusalem, about the troops surrounding the city of Jerusalem. Then in contrast to Jerusalem, he says in verse 2, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their what, church? He will be their peace. You know why God chose Bethlehem? I think at least part of the reason is so that the people, his people, could live with hope when there seemed to be no hope. You see, this was not just a prophecy about one day somewhere that someone would be born in Bethlehem, though there is definitely that component. We're going to look at it in, in, in a moment. But this was also a prophecy for the people living in that day. This was a word from the Lord for the people living in dark times, in dark days, when there was little hope. Wondering, is God done with Israel? We're experiencing the wrath of God, the judgment of God because of our sins. Assyria is dominating us. Is God done with Israel? And these were dark and dangerous times. And in that situation, God brought His Son, the Messiah, into the world in this tiny town of Bethlehem to show them that there is hope even when there appears to be no hope. You know, Christmas is a wonderful time. I, I love the Christmas season. There are lights, and there's trees, and there's songs, and there's candy, and there's presents, and there's family gatherings. But you also know this, don't you? That Christmas doesn't make the bad stuff of life go away. The hard things of life are still there. The, uh, the, the, the problems that you're having don't magically disappear simply because it's Christmas. In fact, just the opposite often happens. The, the tragedies of, of life are magnified in the Christmas season, the problems of life, the loneliness we feel, the grief we struggle with is often magnified in the Christmas season. So listen to me. If you've hit rock bottom in your life, you need to learn the lesson and the promise of Bethlehem. 
two things I want you to get today. I mean, you can learn a lot just sitting there. There's two things I want you to learn today. Here's the first one. Number one, the promise of hope is rooted in Scripture. The promise of hope is rooted in Scripture. You see, what Micah prophesied in the Old Testament was fulfilled in the New Testament 700 years later. Now, here's what I want you to do. Put your finger in Micah. You found it. I don't, don't want you to lose it. Put your finger in Micah or a bulletin and go over to the book of Matthew. I want you to see how this promise in the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New. Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? They knew that he was to be born. They didn't know where he was to be born. And they said, We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ or the Messiah was to be born. And here was their answer. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. But this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. The chief priests and the scribes knew that Micah, in Micah 5, that that was a reference to the Messiah. And so when they were asked, where is the Messiah to be born? It was like, well, everybody knows that. That's in Micah. That's, that's what Micah prophesied. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. Now, hang on to that and go with me to another book in the New Testament. I want you to find the book of John, chapter 7. So these were the religious leaders in Matthew 2, but let's see what happens in John, chapter 7. John, chapter 7, verse 40. On hearing his words, some other people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Now, before we go further, let, let me help you understand that in John chapter 7, the question is, is Jesus the Christ? That was the debatable question in John chapter 7. Is he, and the word Christ, as I told you last week, the word Christ is the New Testament word. It's the same as the Hebrew word Messiah. So the question being asked and debated in John 7 is, Is Jesus the Christ? Is he Messiah? Is he the promised one prophesied long ago? That was the question being debated in John chapter 7. So we come to verse 40. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Still others ask, How can the Christ come from Galilee? They knew where Jesus grew up. They knew that he grew up in Nazareth in Galilee. And so some people are saying, well, I know he looks like the Messiah, sounds like the Messiah, seems like he's the Messiah, but how can Christ or Messiah come from Galilee? Does not the Scripture say that the Christ or Messiah will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? So 
in Matthew chapter 2, the chief priests, the scribes, the religious leaders, they knew that Micah chapter 5 referred to the Messiah. But also the people knew that Micah 5 predicted the coming Messiah. So in, you have both. You have the religious leaders and the common people, and both of them know that Jesus was prophesied to be the Messiah in Micah chapter 5 to be born in Bethlehem. Now don't miss this. This is so good. The people in Micah's day and the people in the New Testament, they could live with hope because they had a word from God. You see, in Micah's day, they were living in dark days when the Syrians had conquered them. It was a dark time spiritually, but they could live with hope because there was this word from God. There was this promise that they were hanging on to, that one day, from this little town in Bethlehem, one day Messiah would come. People in the Old Testament days could live with hope. They had a word from God. But also in the New Testament days, religious leaders, the common people, they all knew the same promise. They all knew Messiah was coming. And they all knew he would be, according to Micah, he would be born in Bethlehem. The people in the New Testament days were living with hope. Even though Rome was the great oppressor at that time, and Rome was ruling over God's people, they could live with hope because they knew Messiah was coming. And he'd be born in Bethlehem. They knew the promise. Because they had a word from God. Ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. Biblical hope has its foundation in this. That we can trust in and rely on what God says. You see, God makes a promise. And faith believes that God will keep His promise. And hope anticipates its fulfillment. Biblical hope is a confident expectation or assurance that God will do what He promised to do. If you need hope today, I want to tell you where you'll find it. You'll find it in your Bible. If you need hope today, you can let God speak to you in those times and in those places where there seems to be no hope. In those times and places where it seems to be dark in your life. In those times and places where it's hard, where you need hope the most, you will find it in the promises of God. See, God has a special way. I don't understand how He does it, except I, except I just know that He's sovereign. God has a special way of sending messages of hope when there appears to be no hope. God knew, this is, this is, watch this, in the Old Testament days, God knew a better day was coming. And He told them so. You know what? I believe God knows a better day is coming for you too. And He's telling you that. He's promising you that. So no matter what you're facing, no matter what you're going through, God is saying, there is a better day coming. There is a future I have in mind for you. And don't lose sight of that. So hang on to what God shows you in those hard seasons of life. When you're in the Word of God and the Word of God speaks to you and encourages you, and when God makes a promise, hang on to the Word of God in those hard seasons of life. You see, watch this. Hope is not found in your circumstances. Hope is found in what the Sovereign Lord says about your circumstances. That's where they found hope in the days of Micah. They found hope not in their circumstances, but in what the Sovereign Lord said about their circumstances. So the promise of hope is found in Scripture. Number two, Here's the second thing I want you to get. The promise of hope is given to the least likely. It's given to the least likely. Look at verse 2. He says, 
back in Micah. Go back to Micah with me. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. He says, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah. Ephrathah, by the way, is an old name for Bethlehem. It's found in, it's found in uh, the book of Genesis. And it's just an old name for Bethlehem. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, through, or though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel. Though you are small among the clans of Judah. You might want to underline that in your Bible. Though you are small among the clans of Judah. New American Standard translates it this way. You're too little to be among the clans of Judah. It's, it's almost as if God were saying, but you, Bethlehem, though, you're almost too small to count. You're almost too small to matter. But they were counted in the tribes of Israel. And God was saying, though you are small, hardly worth counting among the clans, you still have significance. Everybody look at your pastor. I want to ask you a very key question. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever contrasted the insignificance of Bethlehem with the great significance of the one who was born there. It's exactly what he does in verse 2. Look at it with me in verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, you are insignificant. Out of you will come for me one who will be greatly significant, who will be ruler over Israel. You see in verse 2, God is contrasting the, the littleness of the town with the greatness of the ruler who will come from that town. God chose a small, quiet, out-of-the-way place. And in that small, quiet, insignificant, out-of-the-way place, He did something that changed history and changes eternity. But none of us would have chosen that place to bring the Messiah into the world. None of us would have chosen the tiny little town of Bethlehem to bring Messiah into the world. And isn't that the point? Isn't that the point? God shows up to a group of insignificant people in an insignificant place to do His greatest work. And oh, by the way, He does that today too many times. You see, we think in terms of merit. We think in terms of importance. We think in terms of significance. We think in terms of power. We think in terms of position. But the deepest meaning of the littleness and the insignificance of Bethlehem is that God offers hope to the least likely. I love this. If you feel like your life doesn't matter, you feel like you have nothing to offer, you feel like, you know... Nobody cares. Please remember that God offers hope to those who need it most, even those who least likely deserve it. That's what Bethlehem is about. God offers hope to the least likely. I came across a story this week about a, a young man named Casey Cashin. Casey had a rough childhood. Casey... His father left when he was four years old and he was sexually abused by a cousin. When he finally made it to grade school on the playground, the other kids would play, but nobody wanted anything to do with Casey for some reason. He found himself playing on the playground all by himself every day. 
While everyone seemed to kind of fit in and be happy with their friends, Casey felt odd and different and left out. This eventually led to bullying in middle school. Severe bullying. One boy would regularly punch him in the face every single day and eventually threw him down a flight of stairs. Casey said, I would talk to people and try to make them my friends, but when I did that, they would just laugh at me and they would make fun of me. He was rejected for so long that Casey said, eventually I felt more like an animal than a person. Church really wasn't any better. When he went to church, he still felt excluded. When he went to church, he still felt alone. And he learned in church that if you're rich, that's because God loves you and He's blessing you. But if you're poor, well, you're, you're just Casey. As Casey began high school alone, he began to hear whispers. And the whispers said to him, If the light rejects you, come into the darkness. And he did. With no one to love him and no one to tell him he was of worth, Casey sought acceptance in the darkness. He turned to the demonic and to the occult. Casey's life continued to spiral downward rapidly. In Casey's senior year of high school, there was one little young lady that he was very interested in. She happened to be one of the most popular girls in school, but he thought, it's, it's my senior year, it's Valentine's Day, I'm going to go for it. And so he took a long time and he took some wire and he crafted a tulip out of that wire and, and put v velvet on it, different colors of velvet, made a beautiful little flower, and then he crafted a card and then he got her favorite candy, which was Skittles, and he put the card and the flower and the candy together, and on Valentine's Day, he went to school, and he nervously presented it to her. I'm not sure what she said to him at that day when, when it was presented, but later that day, he found it in the trash can. When he saw it in the trash can, something didn't quite look right, and so he, he dug it out of the trash, and he noticed that she had taken the flower that he had made and somehow twisted it and turned it and made it into a dagger. And she took the dagger and poked it through the card and she wrote on the card, Die, you freak. And threw it away. At the end of the day, Casey went home and he cried himself to sleep. He woke up about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning and he went to the kitchen and he found what he wanted and then he went to his bathroom and he sat down with a butcher knife in his hand ready to just end it all. He thought, I have nothing to look forward to. I have no one who cares about me. I have no one that loves me. I'm of no worth to anybody. I'm just going to end it all. And at that moment, he heard another voice. This was not, though, a voice from the darkness. This was a voice from the light. And the voice said, don't do this. I have plans for you. And the voice was so real that he set the knife down. Life didn't change immediately for, for uh, Casey, but eventually, in, in a month or two, eventually his, his brother began to go to a Bible study, and his brother invited him to a Bible study, and, a, and another friend of his brother invited him to that Bible study, and Casey continued to refuse. He didn't want anything to do with those people. He'd been to church before. He'd been rejected in church before. He didn't want to experience that again. He wanted nothing to do with it. 
But eventually, because they kept lovingly asking, he eventually went. And in God's sovereignty, the speaker that night was a plumber. A plumber who told the story of being called to a home where the septic system exploded. He then tied the metaphor to the story of Jesus wading through the filth of our lives to embrace us. And Casey couldn't believe what he was hearing. That Jesus would wade through the filth of our lives to embrace us? And Casey thought, is this real? Is this true? Could Jesus love someone like me? And he thought, I'm an evil person. Could Jesus love someone like me? See, up until this point, Casey didn't even know there was another option. He just assumed he was going to hell and he was okay with that because he thought that was all he deserved. But now, as he heard this, this plumber talking about Jesus wading through the mess of our lives to embrace us, he thought, man, if this is true, if Jesus could love somebody as evil as me, I would give my life to him. And that night he did. And Jesus changed him. Radically saved him. And Casey then devoted his life, by the way, going to Los Angeles to a downtrodden area of Los Angeles, helping other kids who seem insignificant. Helping other kids who didn't feel like they fit in. Helping other kids who did not feel loved to tell them about one who came to walk through the cesspools of life to embrace us. Listen to me, church. Jesus was born in Bethlehem because God wanted to show those people that are not on anybody's radar that they were on His radar. Jesus was born in Bethlehem because God wants you to know that there is no such thing as an insignificant person to God. I love the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 1.15 where he says, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. You know what Paul was saying? Paul was saying, I found out that God often gives His hope and His love and His mercy to people who are the least likely. Paul was saying, I've experienced that God gives His hope and His love and His mercy to those who really don't deserve it. And I want you to know today that your life can be different. It doesn't have to be what it's always been. Jesus can save you from your sin and He can transform you and change you into a new person. And He comes to the people who seem to be insignificant. He comes to the people who, and you might think, nobody in my family cares about me. My dad left me. My mom doesn't care about me. I've got nobody who really cares about me. My husband, my wife, nobody really cares about me. My life doesn't matter. And Jesus said, oh yes it does. Oh, yes, it does. When I could pick any place in the world for my son to be born, I chose for him to be born in Bethlehem, an insignificant place, insignificant people, because I want everybody to know that everybody matters to me. You matter to him. Bethlehem screams, you matter to him. He does not overlook anybody. By the way, you know what the name Bethlehem means? The house of bread. That's what the name means. 
John chapter 6, we don't have time to look there. In John chapter 6, verse 51, do you know what Jesus said a few years later after he began, or some years later after he began his ministry? Jesus said, I am the bread of life who came down from heaven. Isn't it interesting that the bread of life who came down from heaven was born in the house of bread? See, this is not just chance. This is not just coincidence. This was God's sovereign plan to say, He can meet the greatest need of your life. He is the bread of life. He can give you life. And He wanted to say, and I can do it for anybody. No one is insignificant. No one is off his radar. So he was born in a little town of Bethlehem. You got to see. You got to see how the book ends. Go to Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7. Notice how this book ends. Here's the question. Verse 18. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? Who is a God who does this, who who pardons sins and forgives us? He says, you do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. I love that. He loves to show mercy. He delights to show mercy. God will show you mercy. And he says in verse 19, You will again have compassion on us. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot. And he did that at Calvary. And hurl, watch this, and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Whatever it is you've done, God is willing to hurl all of your iniquities into the depths of the sea where they can be found no more. And then he says in verse 20, You will be true to Jacob and show mercy to Abraham as you pledged on earth to our fathers in days long ago. You know what Michael was saying? God, you are a God who keeps his promises. You kept your promises to to, uh, Jacob and to Abraham and you will keep your promises to us. You are a God who loves to share mercy. My question today would be this. Do you need God's mercy? Do you want God's mercy? Do you need God's forgiveness? The bread of life was born in the house of bread, the little town of Bethlehem. Because God wants you to know you are significant to Him. You may not feel significant to anybody else, but you are significant to Him. He cares about you. He loves you. And He has already declared and has promised He will forgive you. And Casey and thousands and millions of others can testify, not only will He forgive you, but He can change you and make you a different person. Let's pray about that. What's your response going to be today?
I hope that your response will be that you're going to, like Casey, finally realize you are loved in a way that you could never imagine. You are loved. And the one who loves you the most can change your life. Father, in the name that is above every name, in the name of Jesus, the name at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord in that name today. We pray that someone might bow. They might bow the knee and welcome Christ into their life, recognizing their sin but His glory and His goodness and the offer of salvation. May they receive that today, not because of who we are, because we're nobodies. We're insignificant. In the world's eyes, perhaps we don't even matter. But, Lord, thank you that we matter to you. And we praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.